0: Good morning, church. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You know, we're no strangers to rivalries, right? To some divisions. I mean, we live in college football country, right? I mean, so there's going to be no shortage uh, this year, maybe even today, of some back and forth between uh, Gator fans and Georgia fans and Florida State fans and Alabama fans and the list goes on. You know, one of the longest existing rivalries around here, at least that I remember growing up... uh, um, You know, uh, seeing is the Georgia-Florida rivalry, right? I grew up adamantly opposed to the Georgia Bulldogs, right? I was um, behind a um, car recently and saw one of those bumper stickers. You've probably seen them before where it says, like, on one side, he's a gator, and on the other side, she's a bulldog, right? When I see that, I'm always like, that is a Christian family right there. Only the gospel can do that work right there. Uh, But there are rivalries like that, divisions like that, that we have fun with right at the end of the day, just a game. Uh, but we do exist in a world uh, where real division exists where real hostility exists it's around us and and often it stems from how different people are from one another you know i actually count it a blessing to live well, where we get to live in northeast florida it's a very diverse area uh, but diversity in uh, being different from one another can actually be a source of major division among one another. When people are different, when people have different backgrounds, have lived different stories, grow up in different cultures, uh, in different ways, you know, trying to live together in a city or in a country, it can create hostility, it can great, create polarization. And if we can be honest this morning, we should be able to be honest in church, you know, some of that may have welled up in our hearts and probably has welled up in all of our hearts at one time or another sometimes maybe even coming out of our mouths but the gospel that i tongue-in-cheek just a moment ago said and mentioned is powerful enough to bring a bulldog and a gator fan together is all joking aside something that has the power to bring true unity to bring true unity to groups that on paper, as far as the world's concerned, aren't supposed to get along. The gospel has the power to work in a group of people who couldn't be any more different and to make them family. That's what Jesus has done. That's what he, the work he's accomplished uh, on the cross to uh, create in us, a oneness and a unity as family. And that's what Paul comes alongside the church in Ephesus to help them to understand, because you had Gentiles and you had Jews and you had a lot of hostility and division that existed between those two groups of people. But what Paul shows them, and he shows us is that the gospel has the power to unite us. The gospel has the power to make us family. So stand with your Bibles open, I'll begin to read in verse 11. Chapter two in Ephesians. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now, or but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, isn't that very clear on our first reading through it? Not at all, really, right? It's been a very long week of study, so let's pray that God would have a seat as I pray that God would help all of us to learn this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, would guide us and teach us and show us the things that we can't see on our own. For our good and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is... Aware, Remember, he's in a prison cell in Rome. He's had a messenger from the church of Ephesus come and give him a report on how the church is doing. And he's heard in that report that there's hostility, that there's division in the church in Ephesus between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And to tackle this issue, he decides to directly address Gentile believers in the church. And he begins in verse 11 by telling them, remember... He says, hey, I want you all to remember something. I want you all to come back with me. Let's take a trip down memory lane. And I want you to remember where you were when Christ met you. I want you to remember all that God's done in your life and how all of that should be leading you in your church to experiencing not division in your church, but unity in your church. So the first thing that he reaches back, takes them back to remember a past reality about their life that will help bring them to a place of unity in the church is this. Number one. Two points this morning. Here's the first one. He reminds them and gets them to remember that they were once separated from the hope of God. Separated from the hope of God. I want you to be mindful this morning as we walk through this. The Gentile story is our story. Who were we before Christ? Separated from the hope of God. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Time out there, All right, If you weren't raised in church, if you've never read the Old Testament before, if this is all new to you, you just woke up a little bit a moment ago when we stood and read this text because you could have sworn I said the word circumcision in church. What in the world? Why, are, why is he talking about that? If you're a little confused about that, that's understandable, okay? But what we're entering into right here is thousands and thousands of years of Jewish history, all right? Thousands of years before this, thousands of years ago, Genesis 15 records that God chose the family of Abraham, a family that grew into a big nation nation called israel uh, to be his chosen people his chosen people through which he would bring the messiah into the world to save the world and for that nation the jewish people god chose i don't know why i don't know all the reasons why right but god chose in His sovereignty to give them an outward sign that would separate them from other people in the world and that outward sign was circumcision and if you weren't in that community if you didn't bear that specific sign, you and your family were Gentile outsiders. You were outside the covenant community of God. And for centuries, you had these two groups, and you had this hostility that began to develop, this division that began to develop between those two cultures. Right? These two cultures hated each other. The Jewish nation got to a place where they felt like they were better than the other culture. Right? They should have been a nation you know, if they would have... Uh, understood god's heart they would have had a heart for all nations but along the way they lost that heart that they were supposed to have for the peoples of the world and they grew to despise pagan gentiles you know what gentiles returned the favor they despised jews they called each other names the jews didn't let their kids near gentiles in fact this hate ran so deep that if, let's say, a Jewish young man in those days, in those ancient days, in some kind of Romeo and Juliet story, fell in love with a Gentile young lady, and they ran away and got married, they'd actually hold a funeral service for that Jewish young man in the community, because as far as they were concerned, that young Jewish man, from that point on, was dead to them. So there's a long history of hostility between these two groups, and that's still looming in the church in Ephesus. It shouldn't be, but it is. There was friction, there was tension all right, You had these two groups clashing over cultural differences. The Gentiles were feeling pressure from some Jews in the church, Jewish believers, who weren't thinking right, who were putting pressure on the Gentile believers to adopt certain practices, i.e. circumcision, in order to be a real serious God follower. All right, and If one of those Jews was the one teaching the new members class, there's no, no wonder the Gentile men weren't signing up for the new membership class. So Gentiles were feeling judged, less than, feeling like outsiders. There's all this friction, all this division. But notice how Paul deals with it. He didn't like take out like a rifle of, of truth and just aim it right at the Jewish believers. kind of takes an indirect route. It's very interesting. He instead turns to the Gentiles. He turns to the Gentiles in the church and he said, hey... Let's me and you have a conversation. Let's go back and let's remember who you were before Christ. Let's remember how you got into the family of God. Let's me and you Gentile believers have a little conversation. And the Jewish believers are going to kind of listen in, kind of on this conversation. And we're all going to learn together and we're all going to get on the same page while all of us should be like acting and interacting and treating each other like family and loving one another. He says in verse 12, again addressing Gentile believers remember that you Gentile believers were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world now Jewish believers are standing there as this is being read out loud in the church of Ephesus are probably going mm-hmm, you tell them Paul they're, they were they were outsiders and Paul uses three words to describe how hopeless the Gentiles were before Christ and by the way again this is our story too what are the three words that he uses? He says, one, you were separated. You had no relationship with God at all. Two, you were alienated. He says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You didn't belong to the nation of God's people. You didn't have the right passport. You didn't have the right papers, the legal papers. You were outsiders. You were excluded. And the third word is strangers. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Think about that. They were raised in these Greco-Roman polytheistic families for centuries and centuries who taught them nothing about the Faithfulness of God. You know, in a Jewish home, you know, if you're a Jewish young man, a Jewish young woman, you've got a Jewish mother who's tucking you into bed at night, who's telling you what her mother told her and her mother told her and her mother told her about the perfect track record of God's faithfulness. Telling you about, hey, remember how Moses led the Israelites and they were backed up against the Red Sea and God split the sea and He delivered them. He was faithful to them and that same God's going to be faithful to us. They never heard stories like that. They weren't raised in homes like that. They were complete strangers, Paul says, to the covenants of promise. And what Paul is doing here is he's reminding the Gentile believers that there was a Grand Canyon-sized separation between them and God and them in the community of God. They were hopeless. They were rebellious outsiders, hostile towards God, hostile towards the people of God. But that was a past reality about their life. Something else happened that changed everything, that took them from being a hopeless people to being gloriously hopeful, from being a hostile, divided people with division in their heart and hate in their heart towards the jews to having the ability now to be humble and to be unified and what happened to make all of this possible the cross happened so paul says remember you were separated from the hope of god but now i want you to remember something else point number two this morning that praise god this is going to fix everything you are reconciled through the cross of christ You were reconciled. You were separated from God, but you were reconciled through the cross of Christ. Verse thirteen. I love this. But now, same kind of awesome phrase we saw earlier in verse four when Paul said, "But God, being rich in mercy, saved you." Here's what he says now. But now, he says, "But now," and then he gives you four words that changes everything. He says, "But now, you and I hear the four words have been brought near." have been brought near. Those four words give you the reality of the gospel. Remember the Gentile story, if you're in Christ, is your story. You and I, by God's grace, have been brought near. Paul's done a pretty good job of building a pretty good case about that Grand Canyon-sized separation between us and God in our sin. How hopelessly dead and separated from God in our sin we are. But through Christ, everything's changed. Through Christ, through the blood of Christ, through the cross of Christ, we've been brought near to God. And I want you to dial in for a moment on that word now. Christ follower, believer, dial in right here on that word now. But now, the grammar right there is really, really important. That's an awesome Greek word that means, it literally means, at this exact moment. That's really powerful. Now you have been brought near. If you're in Christ, now you've been brought near to God. Now you've been brought into a right relationship with God. That means we're talking about that now, right now, at this exact exact moment that is true for you. At any given moment in your life as a Christ follower, that phrase right there is true about you in Christ Jesus. You've been brought near to God. It means that five minutes from now, you've been brought near to God. It means that ten minutes from now, you've been brought near to God. It means that ten million years from now as a Christ follower, in that moment, you will be there. You are there now. It's true about you. You've been brought near To God. Now you say, why is that important? Because sometimes we like to live on spiritual mountaintops. We enjoy that. We look back and see those moments in our life and we kind of chase those. Nothing wrong with that. Definitely moments in our life where we see God move with power, memorable moments. But we think of those moments, those spiritual mountaintop moments. Maybe it was a particular week at a summer camp. Maybe it was a, a season in your life that kind of came out of a, a revival type of experience that you had. Maybe it was last year. You can think about a, a, a season in your life last year when you felt like you were killing it as a husband or as a wife or a mom or a dad. A time when you were reading your Bible. You were, you, you were submitted to the Lord in just a very special way. You were growing in your walk with Jesus, but then you hit a rough patch. And you your Bible reading started to slack. And what happens in that moment is you go, Man, I don't feel as near to God anymore. God, I, I'm not I'm not as near to God as I was. I dropped the ball this week. Man, I yelled at my kids. Man, I got in a fight with my spouse. I committed that sin again that I promised God I'd never commit again that I struggle with over and over again. And I don't feel near God right now, but I love what Paul says. He says, Hey, look right here. But now, believer. This is talking about your position in Christ. Positionally in Christ, whether you're on the mountaintop or you're in the valley, God loves you exactly the same positionally in Christ Jesus. His love for you does not rise and fall with your performance spiritually. And the enemy has convinced some of you that that's true. Listen, do we fight sin? Do we confess sin? Do we denounce sin? Yes, yes, yes. But we never forget all the while that right now, in this exact moment, five minutes from now, in that moment, last night, no matter what you did, no matter what your struggles, no matter what your right now looks like, you've been brought near to God. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less in Christ Jesus. And in fact, I'd argue that a major key to you fighting sin, a major key to you experiencing victory, a major key to you experiencing intimacy in the nearness to God that you long for is primarily a product of remembering that you're already near to God. That you are... Near, you are forgiven, that you are accepted by God in Christ Jesus, you are His, you are His child, you 're in His family. He 's brought you near. The language here also is the grammar here is uh, it 's the idea that this has already been completed, that this is done, and it 's been done for you. you 've been brought near. It, the work's completed. Christ is the one who's done the work. It's a complete work of the grace of God, which would have been a very healthy reminder for some of those Jewish believers who were listening in as this letter was being read out loud and for the church of Ephesus on the day that it was delivered to them, for them to hear as well. They're all hearing about the grace of God right here. They're all hearing about the work that God has accomplished through Christ on the cross, bringing people near to God. And this is the place that Paul's bringing the church right here. He's bringing them to the point. He's saying this, Christians in Ephesus, all of you have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God through faith alone. It's not by your work. So whether you're a Gentile believer who is far from the things of God, never heard about the things of God, far from the community of God and far from God himself, or if you were a Jewish believer who grew up around all the things of God, who knew all the right things, but without Christ were spiritually just as far away from God as the Gentile pagan, you've both been brought near to God in the same way through the cross of Jesus Christ. The blood that Jesus shed that washes a believing Jew clean is the same blood that washes a Gentile clean. And because in Christ we're people who have been brought into a peaceful relationship with God the exact same way, we should be able to live at peace with one another. That's right. Because of what Jesus has done. It's all about Jesus. Amen. In other words, the key to peace is for y'all to get your eyes back on the cross. For you guys to get your eyes back on the doorway. They got all of y'all in here. And that's Jesus. Get your eyes on Jesus. I love what it says in verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace. I love that. Jesus is presented as our peace. It doesn't say he comes to bring peace. It doesn't say under the right circumstances he can create it. It says that Jesus, he himself is our peace. You want to talk about relevancy. You want to talk about relevance. Jesus is a cliche, but you know, often, sometimes, in the cliche spiritual things that we throw out there, there's a lot of truth in it. Jesus is still the answer the world needs today. Jesus is still the answer to the peace that the world longs for but can't seem to find. we got to remember that. Like, you have to be living under a rock not to see and not to agree that there is political division around us racial division socioeconomic divides all kinds of other division in our culture but the ultimate answer to bring people together in a peaceful way to live peaceably among one another to live in a united way that does the, the power in that and the answer for that does not lie in politics does not lie in policies does not lie in social constructs the only thing that brings peace ultimately is he himself who is our peace and that's Jesus Christ any division that exists in the world is a gospel issue. Wait, are you saying we shouldn't vote? No, vote. Vote as a Christian. That's important. We're blessed to live in a country where we can vote. Vote as a believer. Be involved in politics. Just understand this, that the biggest impact you can make in this world and in this community when it comes to creating peace or bringing peace to situations into a community is something that... You can do beyond your vote. You can preach the gospel of peace to people in your sphere of influence, to people at your workplace, to people in your neighborhood, to people in your family. You can can look to cultivate some gospel fueled, peaceful relationships with some people and fellowships with some people who maybe don't look like you, who maybe were raised a little different than you, who maybe don't talk like I talk. And as we do that, as we spread the gospel of peace, and as we enter into and experience and cultivate gospel-centered relationships with people who may look a lot different than me, what we do is we become a gospel-centered community of faith that is like a lit-up city on a hill that shines in this dark, divided world and shows them what it looks like to experience peace among people who are very different. Verse 14 shows us that's exactly what Jesus came to do. It says there in verse 14, Jesus has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh through the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. Man, the Gentiles would have immediately understood and seen in their minds exactly what Paul was referring to. They would have seen in their minds that actual wall in the temple that existed at that time that the Jews built, a literal wall that was built to keep them out. To keep them out in the court of Gentile. It was a wall that sent a message loud and clear. Hey, you can be a God follower, but you worship God out there. Historians tell us that there were signs posted on that wall in the temple that said basically the essence of what it said was, hey, if you got the guts, Gentiles, to hop this wall, just you're basically writing your death, your death certificate. As a Gentile, you're, you're not welcome in this place. It was a literal wall of hostility. And the Jewish religion consisted of a bunch of walls that divided people by gender, by race, by background. But Jesus comes and through his death on the cross, knocks down all of those walls and makes us one. Verse 15 and 16 reiterate how this happens. What Paul's saying here is, listen guys, God's changed all. He's changed the old rules. The old ceremonial commandments that you read about in the Old Testament, those ordinances that symbolize acceptance into the family of God and His promises, that system's been done away with. And for both groups, it's clear how we get to God, and we all get to God the same way. And it's not through the old way mentioned in verse 11, that procedure of tearing flesh and shedding blood. We enter into the covenant family of God now through the flesh that's torn and the blood that's shed from the body of Jesus Christ the God-man. And it makes us one new man. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile, no longer divided groups. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we all enter into a right, peaceful relationship with God through the blood of Christ. And what that does is it turns us into spirit-filled believers who now, through the power of His blood, can also live peaceably with other people no matter how different we are. Makes us right vertically and also makes us right with people horizontally because he made us one new man one new race as Paul says you know what that means it means the way that we interact as a community of faith the way we interact as the church globally and even locally here is different than the way things are done out in the world It should look different. All the things that divide people out there don't divide us in here. All the dividing walls have been broken down in Christ Jesus. In the family of God, we don't hold on to prejudice anymore. In the family of God, we don't hold on to racism anymore. That doesn't fit anymore with who we are. That was the old man. That's verse 11 and verse 12. It's different now. Jesus has come to be our peace. Jesus has made us a new man. You know what that means? You know what he's saying right here? He's saying Jesus doesn't just come to make us equal people, he comes to make us new people. He comes to make us a new race. A race of people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the powerful work that he did on the cross and through his resurrection that is so it's 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 a new race of people the world has never seen since the curse. It's uniquely a group of people that's uniquely unified, even though we're different. The walls of hostility fall. Maybe you felt hostility out there. Maybe you felt hostility in the world because of the way you look. Maybe you felt hostility in the world because of your accent. Maybe you felt less than or as an outsider because of your background or your socioeconomic status or your skin color. That's how it always has been and that's how it always will be in the world until Jesus comes back. But you know what, until then, that's not how it is in here. This is a place where we're one in Christ. One race in Christ Jesus. You know what that doesn't mean? That doesn't mean we ignore all of our differences. For example, God sees and celebrates color. He celebrates ethnicity. We're told to be, we aren't told to be colorblind. We celebrate the difference and the diversity because that's part of the tapestry that God has created. So we celebrate that. We take joy in that. But what makes us different is that in the midst of all our diversity and all of our differences and all of our different backgrounds and all the different ways that we were, were raised and our different stories, what makes us different is that with all those differences and in spite of all of those differences, we're still family. That's right. Man. We're a community of faith, We're one in Christ Jesus. We all came through the same door of God's grace. The ground is level at the foot of the, ha- foot of the cross. Nobody is better than anybody else. We're all sinners saved by grace. All reconciled through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. We have the same access, as he says in verse 17, by one spirit to the Father. same spirit. That means there's not an American Holy Spirit, there's not an African Holy Spirit, there's not a Mexican Holy Spirit one spirit. Nobody's better than anybody else. You say, well, but pastor, I'm like a I'm like a SEAL Team 6 Christian. You see, I like there's probably not a person on campus today that can beat me in sword drill. You know, I know my Bible front ways and back ways. I know the answer to every Bible trivia question. I've been in church my entire life, right? I've lived a pretty clean life my entire life. I've never what do they say? Drink, smoked, or chewed, or run around with girls that do? I've, I've, been, a, I've been an Eagle Scout Christian, right? I've given a lot of money to charity. I've given a lot of money to the church. I volunteer every single week down at the food bank. I'm actually very, very rich. I'm actually a very good looking I'm very handsome. I'm very beautiful. Where's the VIP section in the church? Because if there is one, that's kind of where I belong. Where's that place that's roped off with the velvet ropes? I've got news for you. There's no VIP section in Schindler Drive Baptist Church because there's no VIP section in the family of God because there's no VIP section in heaven. There's one new man. There's one race. And we've all come into this thing through the same door. We've all been called into the kingdom of God the same way, through the blood of Jesus Christ, reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. You know what that means? All of us in the community of faith, all of us who say Jesus is our Lord and Savior, all of us, no matter our differences, are precious in the sight of God. And so you know what that means? It means to ignore or mistreat or to disrespect or to talk down to any part of the bride of Christ because they're different than me or you're, you have a different story than me or you have less money than me or maybe you smell different than me or you're raised in a different way to me, than me. For those dividing walls to di- still exist in our hearts and in a community of faith, think about how offensive that is to God because you are feeling that way about a part of His bride. Right? That's offensive. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved is part of his bride. And it's precious in his sight. And if you're in Christ, everybody who calls upon Jesus to be their Lord is just as precious in the sight of God as you are. And it's part of his bride. And so to to disrespect them is to disrespect God. To push them away, is to push yourself away from God and to deny the very gospel that you say saves you. We understand that that would be an offense to God as we think about the church being His bride. If one of you came up to me after the service and said, hey, Jonathan, I, I would love to take you out to eat. You know, this coming Friday, me and my wife, we'd love to take you to go uh, have a dinner together. And I'd be what i what I'd say, I'd say, oh, wow, thank you. That's very nice of you. That's very gracious of you. Let me just, let me, I'll get back to you later today. Let me check with my wife, Rebecca. Let's see if she, if we have anything on the calendar. And let me also make sure that, you know, uh, you know the, the kids don't have anything on the calendar. Let me see if that'll work. And if, what if they were to stop me and go, oh, no, 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 no. I <laughs> think that wasn't clear. See, we know your wife. We've kind of interacted with her some. And we don't actually like her as much as we like you. Which, by the way, is an impossibility, right? Just use your imagination. Use your imagination. But we're not as crazy about her. We just want to go, you know, eat dinner with you. And we kind of chuckle about that because we know how ridiculous that is. And we know that that's not going to, that's not going to go well for you. Because that's my bride. That's my bride. The church is the bride of Christ. You know what that means? It means you can't say, hey, I love Jesus. I love singing songs about how much I love Jesus. Jesus, I want to spend time with you next Friday night, but don't bring your bride because I don't like her as much as you. I've got issues with some people in your church, some of your people that's inconsistent with the gospel that you say saves you. And when Paul said this, these Gentiles, when they heard it, it would have been so revolutionary. It would have been Difficult, And sometimes things like this are difficult. What do you mean? New people with the Jews? A new race? A new family with the Jews? My whole life I've been trained and conditioned to stay away from them. To hate them. There's real friction. Real tension. He's saying, yeah, but not anymore. He's created us into one new man, one new race. See, there used to be two groups. There used to be other groups. You had Jews and Gentiles and other groups. What Paul is saying is there is a new distinction, a new New Testament standard. And here's the standard. It's no longer about Jew and Gentile. It's no longer about this group and that group. Really, the question is this when it comes to fellowship and community. Are you a Jesus follower or have you not met Him yet? Those are the options. And If you're a Jesus follower, you've joined a brand new race of people. You're part of a brand new family that's made up of different tribes, tongues, and nations. That's made up of people with different ethnicities and backgrounds and personalities and different stories and different looking bank accounts and the cross that supernaturally connects me with God. Now, supernaturally connects me with my new family some of whom may look very different and sound different everything about us can be very different but if i ask a question to someone hey are you a jesus follower and no matter how different they are from me have you met jesus and they say yes you're my people that's the difference Paul said in colossians chapter 3 verse 11 he said here, he said the word here, in here, in the community of faith, in the church. There is no Greek, there is no Jew, there is no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Do you know Jesus? That's what really matters. Hallelujah. Yeah. If so, you're my people. Do you know Jesus? You're my people. And the cross that reconciles me to God reconciles me with you in spite of our differences, in spite of our different backgrounds. I love this. You know what this means? It means I can go across town where they're in Christ... I can go across town where there's a neighborhood that might look different than mine. I can go down to the homeless shelter and see people who look different than me, who struggle differently than me. I can go into affluent areas of our city uh, where people look different and live different than me, but who are Christians. I can go across the world literally where there are cultures that look different than my culture, where they listen to different music that I wouldn't necessarily listen to, where they eat foods. I've been to places that I wouldn't dare to eat, and I'm only eating there just to be polite, but I've never eaten again. I can go into places where people are so different than me. Different backgrounds, different stories, different experiences. I, I couldn't be more different from them. But here's the question. Hey, do you love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus. I love Jesus too. You're my people. That's right. yeah. You know what that means? I've got more in common with someone from a completely different culture who eats a different, completely different kind of food, listens to a completely different kind of music, I've got more in common with a Christian who is from a different culture and likes all those different things that are way different than things that I like. I got more in common with that person than I do somebody who is my people, who connects with me with the things that I listen to and the things I watch and some of the ways that I think and some people that I would naturally probably sit at the lunch table with. Now I got something more in common with people all across the world who may be very different from me in very different ways, but there's a big thing now that we share in common that overshadows everything, and that's Jesus. Jesus Christ. You're my people. Because now we're part of the same eternal team. We're part of the same eternal family. Hey, we came through the same door of grace. We serve the same King, King Jesus, who came and died to bring us near to God, and as His church brings us near To one another. You know, to summarize all this, Paul gives us some pictures here at the end. He gives us, Paul loves metaphors. By the way, us Southerners love metaphors. Y'all know that, right? You probably think of your grandma or grandpa or your mom or dad who throw out little metaphors, little funny little Southern metaphors. I actually looked up some like popular Southern metaphors this week, and here's one of them that I found. All right. This one says, His cornbread ain't done in the middle, if you know what I mean. some people in other places they might like what in the world we kind of understand what that means right a lot of the southern metaphors are actually kind of mean listen to this one it says if brains were leather you wouldn't have enough to saddle a dune bug (laughs) kind of reminds me of my dad my middle school my dad used to have like sorry he's he's a few french fries short of a happy meal he's talking about me you know as a middle school boy Paul, we like metaphors, we're visual learners. I don't know if you're like me, I like pictures, picture books. If I went to the library when I was in school, I was looking for a picture book. Give me me a book with some pictures that I can take a break and look at. But we're all visual learners. We like metaphors. Paul knows that. And so he ends by giving us a few pictures. And he's actually a metaphor mixer. He would just mix the metaphors. And he's already given us one, you know, being part of a family. Him calling us a family, that's a metaphor. He's using the idea of family to help us understand how we relate to each other in Christ. We're family. Anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved is now in your family. And then he shifts and goes to the metaphor and he says, you are now someone who's received new citizenship into a new kingdom. That's encouraging. And then he shifts again and says, he uses this metaphor. He says, you're the household of God. You're the temple of God. You see it? That's what he's calling us, the temple of God. The temple was a very cherished part of Israel's culture and history. And you know what? Jesus shows up and kind of flips a lot of things upside down in John chapter 2, verse 18, and explains that part of his mission on earth is to destroy temple worship in Jerusalem and through his death and resurrection to construct a brand new temple, not made of stones, not made of mortar, but of a spiritual household made up of what Peter calls living stones a living temple made up of redeemed people like us, Christians. And it's called the church. You know what that means? It means that the Spirit of God no longer just dwells in a temple. His Spirit lives in us. His Spirit lives in us. We are the church. We are His temple in this world. What that means, hey, that temple in Jerusalem that used to be the center of God's activity in the world, now the church is. The church is the center of God's activity in the world through which He accomplishes His mission, through which He shines a light of hope, through But you know, if we think about where the living temple, if we think about what actually happened in the temple, can you picture it in your mind? It'll help us understand who we're called to be as the living temple. You remember what happened in the temple when Jesus is on the cross? And his flesh has been torn and his blood is being poured out. He's absorbing the wrath of God in our place. And what does he say? It is finished. And what does the Bible tell us happened in the temple? The veil that separated people from the Holy of Holies, the Holy Presence of God, it tore in two. Paul says here that in that moment the walls of hostility fell and were removed. And that's a picture that can help us understand who we're called to be as the living temple of God today. We're in a world where we're sinful people who've been saved by grace, who've been made right with God vertically. The veil has been torn. We've gained access to a holy God through Christ. His Holy Spirit has been poured into our lives. We're at peace with God vertically. And now horizontally we live at peace with others. There's no more relational barriers in here that you see out there. They've been removed in Christ Jesus, and that makes us a very different people from people in this world. You should be able to distinguish that—the living temple of God—from the people in this world. We should stand out. It should be a place where we're squashing hostility, we're squashing division. You know, it—it may not work that way at your workplace. It may not work that way at your school. There still may be walls of hostility that stand in your family, in your extended family. You may not feel that when you turn on the news or in other places in this world where things feel hopelessly divided and where dividing walls exist based on appearance and background and a lot of other things. But in here, we're gloriously different. This is a place where everybody, anybody in Christ ought to feel unconditionally loved and embraced and accepted because Christ came not to just put a dent in hostility, but to kill it. Amen. To kill it. And when things aren't that way in our hearts and in a church, in our lives... I think sometimes it's probably because we've gotten our eyes off of the reality that heaven is going to be a very diverse place. And if it's going to be diverse there, it's going to be a lot of people with different personalities all centered around Jesus, fellowshipping together, loving one another as a big family. Let's not wait till heaven to start experiencing that. And it's also simply because we've taken our eyes off the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who came and died on the cross to bring us near to God. And if we've experienced that, he's going to bring us near to one another. Let's pray.